welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Each week, our hosts will be interviewing local, regional, and national business leaders to give you an inside peek into how they lead their business to success in the ever-competitive business climate. Welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Today, I have Drs. Todd and Kim Saxon, and they are award-winning professors at Indiana University's Kelly School of Business, as well as co-authors of The Titanic Effect. Their book is a practical guide to help startup founders, as well as their investors and supporters, successfully navigate the icebergs that so often sink startups in the ideation and early stages of development. They tap into decades of academic and professional experience in business strategy, entrepreneurship, marketing, market research, and venture-funded startups to help you navigate the, quote, debtbergs, end quote, that so often sink early-stage startups. Todd and Kim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, pleasure. So I want each of you to, I mean... For for sure, I want an answer from each of you guys on the first question I'm going to ask here. And I ask everybody this when they get on the show, and that is, how did you get here? You know, are you guys from a family of entrepreneurs? I'm always interested in the origin story of entrepreneurs because I think we're special creatures. (laughs) So I'm going to start. And interestingly, both of us, uh, our parents are professors. Uh, So my mom, teacher, and my dad, a professor at college, Kim's mom, professor, and while people might go professors, entrepreneurship, aren't those like at other ends of the continuum? It's actually very different. Uh, as professors, we have a lot of latitude in what we research, a sen- some degree of, of freedom in what we teach and how mm-hmm. we teach it, certainly. Um, so I view the university setting as one where entrepreneurs as we are uh, can actually really thrive um, with this kind of umbrella of support over us. So uh, I and and having the educational background in our family members, I think, uh, was a strong contributor to what we do today. And also, I think within the academic realm, we're kind of viewed as entrepreneurs. So we are innovating. We're just doing it within the university. So launching like each of us have launched new courses, new curriculum, new programs. Um, it's sort of like, hey, if there's something new out there and you want somebody to try it, get Kim and Todd to do it. <laughs> very cool. Very cool. Uh, okay, let's jump into entrepreneurship startups. I, I, we have Alex and I finally moved past the startup phase about seven, seven, eight years ago. We have not failed. I noticed you guys in your bio I was reading leading up to the show today, you agree that like most startups fail within those first seven years. I think 70% was where you guys were, were stating that. And I, I trust your academia uh, and empirical data for that. Where do those sources for startups start? Where where do they start and how do people avoid them if they're con- listening to this and they're considering starting up a business? Yeah. So I think the number one reason that startups or one of the number one reasons that startups fail is they run out of money and they run out of money because of the real reason, which is that they don't have product market fit. And what that really means is they don't have a product that the market really wants. They haven't right. tapped into an unmet need that people are willing to pay for. And therefore they can't generate the revenue that's required to stay in business. Pretty straightforward. Now, the thing about it is that here, most people like to do exactly what they're doing now. Most people's behavior does not change. It takes something pretty phenomenal to get people to do something different. So a lot of entrepreneurs don't really think about you know, what is the incumbent uh, competition that they have? And the biggest source of incumbent incumbent competition is doing nothing, Mm -hmm. right? So how do you 
jolt people out of the complacency that they're really in already. What, what if, if somebody was listening, then if you were to just point exactly to what they should be doing at the beginning, let's say, let's say, and maybe we can contrast it product versus service, right? There's, there's these two different business models. So if, if the, for instance, they're the easy one is right away as a product is like, let they have a, they have their genius idea. They have pet rock 2.0. <laughs> How do they, what, what do you recommend for them to try to test that idea in the market without spending a lot of money to see if there's even a demand for it? Because that's what I've noticed as a lot of people do is like, have you even, you know, for instance, if, if I was speaking to a, somebody else, it would, for me, it would be, have you Googled, does this product exist? <laughs> does it, or does it not exist? Great. Then you have a niche. Let's say it does exist. Should they stop? Why shouldn't they stop? Yeah. So Todd likes to say that I am like the queen of Google search. So no matter who we're talking to, the first thing they start talking, I've got it out and I'm Googling their alternatives. And usually I can ask a question is like, how are you different from A, B, C, or D, right? So a lot of people just don't do that basic work, but you know what, today for a product, particularly if it's a consumer driven product, there are some easy ways to put up stuff and test responsiveness. One of the things we do with a venture studio is we put up Facebook ads. They're super cheap, $50, $100. You'll know if anybody's going to click. Smart, very smart. What about service-based? Is, is it the same thing? I mean, are they just researching their competitors? Service to some is degree. harder. Yeah, and, but I would say it's harder, but it's also easier. Service, you don't necessarily have to invest a lot up front to be able to have a scalable platform, mm -hmm. right? You can go out and if you can sell a single person, you have a designer out there who says, you know what? There aren't many people who are experts in putting pools on top of the house. Yeah. That's going to be my niche. Great, go for it. But first go out and test like, are there any people who want the pool on top of the house? What kind of neighborhoods do they live in? Who else is like them? And you can sell one of those and largely a lot of service, even if it's tech enabled, uh, you can scale simply by selling and then building the team around delivery without having to invest you know, a few hundred thousand or more in a tech platform to be able to uh, really scale uh, at a much higher level. Yeah. A term you guys use that I'm interested in you unpacking because I'm I've never heard this before is that technical debt. So mm -hmm. if you could unpack that in the context of product development, you know, what is the best product development approach then for limiting this technical debt? So I'll tackle that, but I want to go back to service and give you some other ideas to think sure. about. Um, so one at time, uh, we got a postcard in the mail and it was for a pool service. And so I asked the guy, like, how did you do this? And he literally used Google earth maps and identified all the houses in the neighborhood with a pool and sent them a postcard pretty cheap. And he discovered that almost nobody responded to postcards. So instead he went knocking door to door. <laughs> so that is one way to find out about a service is use some tools that are around you. But technical debt is this idea that you have to develop something and you don't know 100% where it's going to end up. So you have to make choices early on in design that can be a problem. And with products, particularly technical products, I'm thinking like we have a, a, a relatively new product that is uh, headphones that you can swim with. Um, and it needs to have an antenna that you know goes all the way to the end of the pool. Well, okay, what if you are in a meter pool, which is 50 meters instead of 25 yards? You know, you design it for 25 yards. Now you've got technical debt because people are swimming 50 meters. Got it. Got it. Excellent. Excellent uh, way to explain that. Thank you for that. 
Um, what are the hidden debts that people should be looking out for? You know, some obligations or expectations that just come up inadvertently they might not think of when they do their when they initially start their startup. Sure. So uh, technical debt really evolved in the software domain. Yeah. Uh, and and as Kim uh, very adequately and eloquently talked about what that is. Um, in our experience, you know, over now 20 plus years working with startups, uh, helping start a couple companies ourselves and being angel investors, we see these recurring patterns of choices people make early, uh, even outside of the technical realm in who they bring on as co-founders, how much equity they allocate, if they bring in investors and, and how they bring those investors in, mm -hmm. uh, how they approach and talk to their customers in the marketplace and brand themselves. Uh, and then the kind of strategy and funding of all of those different elements. So that's the underpinning of the book, The Titanic Effect, and kind of the metaphor that we use is that there are these different categories, the human, the market-based, that technical, and then the strategic uh, kind of integration of all of those. Uh, and all of those are areas where people make uh, choices early that can limit their future. So let's just say you've got two designers or two architects who are working for a big firm and they're like, hey, let's go start our own gig, right? Um, and we'll we'll just split, you know, we'll, we'll each own 50%. Well, are they each equally committed? Are they each equally going to do the, the heavy lifting to get the company actually started to get, yeah. do they have different expertise that complements each other? Or, or is it like, yeah, we're great architects, but dang, we don't know anything about selling. We really need to bring in someone uh, who's kind of the customer interface, lands those new projects so we can design great stuff. Super cool, but have you left any out equity to to add to that founding team and bring in someone so you can pay them a little less and incent them through equity so that they're equally committed to success? So those human decisions of your founding team, who else you bring in, and then how you allocate or vest the equity over time, meaning you have to earn it. You've got to do the hard work uh, to, to actually contribute to the, the launch and growth of the firm to earn that equity over time. And, and those are categories that particularly in service business, I think are, uh, are important to think about and, and be very intentional early in how you make those choices. Or even to founders and you split it 50%, who breaks the ties? <laughs> Right. Yep. Smart. Smart. Right. And then, then, then you start to get in the technicalities of are we LLC, are we an S corp, are we C corp? Is there is there a board? Is there an, is there a board um, mm -hmm. with somebody who it maybe is trying like a, the third leg, and then they're sort of the neutral tiebreaker? Yep. I'm 100 percent with you guys. Uh, I would love it if you could if you could potentially and thank you for gearing this towards architects, designers, and, and service based, based folks. Um, I know we've touched a little bit on the product part, but if if I could get you guys to compare and contrast, L let's say there's the traditional, uh, like you were saying, Todd, startup where it's it's two architects, maybe they don't know sales and, and all of that, and they struggle they struggle through the startup, but, but they figure it out or whatever. Versus, what's an alternative? If you could contrast, like an alternative in a, in a best case scenario for folks like that, what what is something they might consider versus the the standard traditional method, which I think you described it succinctly, actually. Well, so uh, often the the impetus for the scenario that I described is that the two architects work for a firm where uh, they don't feel perhaps appreciated, respected. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't have as much kind of input into decisions and as much of a 
uh, yeah, <laughs> the incentive, right, when the firm does well, uh, because the firm's been around for a couple decades, and they came in, you know, five years ago, but they're brilliant. Well, there are other ways to take a step in the direction of independence, uh, looking for other firms that are smaller, teaming up with uh, another set of folks. So you're not going from a big firm to a, a you know, a, a unit of one or two people. Um, so those are some uh, potential steps to take. Uh, what we see in, in and, and it's probably harder for an architect, uh, though, though I could be wrong there, but in some service businesses, there's kind of the dip in the toe in the water with a side gig, right? That uh -huh. you have for, um, you know, your firm you're working for and perhaps a non-compete, but there are areas outside of that non-compete where you can do elements of design for a custom building or yes, um, medical facilities or, you know, a, a certain part of the house or something like that, where you can kind of test the water with friends, family, neighbors, uh, and, and one, see how you like it, but also to start to build a little bit of a runway so that you have a little bit of, of a rapport relationships um, when you do choose to to exit uh, the, the big firm. Um, I wanted okay, to add and then I want to come back to something a else. different way to think about it. So these got these two service providers who are experts and excellent at what they do. What don't they do in a business? They don't run a business. They mm -hmm. don't do sales. They don't do marketing. Right. So what uh, I see the, with accounting and the accounting financial part. So what I often see with service firms is that um, they have a feast or famine mentality. So they like open up and they have one or two clients and they do all that work. And then they're like, oh, my gosh, we have nothing. And now we have to start <laughs> selling and we have put none of the foundation in place to sell. And so we hire somebody for seventy thousand dollars and they don't understand our business and they did a crappy job. You could actually from the start get a professional manager, someone who's going to be like the CEO or the COO, if you want who's going to take on the, let's get the website, let's get some sales and marketing, let's do the partnerships, the sponsorships, you know, um, otherwise what happens is the CEO or the, the top architect has to decide, is it better for me to sell or deliver? And they're experts at delivering. So why yeah. would you want to take on selling? And there are ways to secure those resources without bringing in a partner or having it full time, like uh, kind of CFO for hires, uh, we know a number of folks who are either chief marketing or, or chief financial officers uh, who can help set up the accounting and and make sure you're not uh, you know violating any tax laws or uh, uh, yeah. the corporate side of things without bringing in a full time person and allocating all the resources associated. But those are good things to explore in advance of of taking that leap. Uh, what I wanted to come back to, which you know, entrepreneurship has some buzz around it, you know, kind of the new rock stars and everybody likes to talk about being an entrepreneur, um, but never fool yourself into thinking that it means you're no longer working for the man, that you're independent, you make all your own decisions, you don't answer to anybody. Mm -hmm. with, with being an entrepreneur, you move from answering to one or two people, your boss and having a support infrastructure to answering to everybody. And you're answering to your partner and family members about why you chose to leave the security of the big firm. You're answering to your new clients because you're unproven and you have to really prove yourself. Um, so employees. just don't, yeah. And your employees, right. You, you start like, I, I can tell you that the most painful conversation we have with entrepreneurs isn't when they leave the firm. It isn't when they are trying to raise their first dollars, secure their first customer. Mm -hmm. It's when they hit a wall and have to lay the first person off. That is so hard. 
and and so challenging for so many entrepreneurs, but not unusual in the startup world. Uh, so again, there are a lot of positive things in terms of freedom and flexibility and and having a little more control and a little more ownership. Um, but but again, don't kid yourself that you're not working for anybody. Uh, you're you're still answering to a lot of folks who are really important for the survival of the entity that you've created. Yeah, it's just a different tweak on the answering for sure. I, I, re I really love that. The other one I would add is just consultants, architects who are dealing with a lot of consultants, but they're, the, everybody who's listening, they're spot on with that with that with that holistic uh, thought process. So you talked, you kind of you kind of leaned in there to a little bit about trade offs, and I like to think of life as a dichotomy of like these positives and negatives. We had we had some positives come out of the pandemic. We had a lot of negatives come out, but like there were certainly look, we're on Zoom here. I'm doing all these kind of interviews like this. So uh, the, there's another uh, phrase you guys use that really spoke to me when I was researching ahead of this uh, interview today, and that was Lean Startup. Alex and I, my business partner, read the Lean Startup. That's how we started our, our, our firm. That's how we started all of our firms, all of our different companies. I would love to hear you guys talk about trade-offs. And there's and like, like I said, there's, there's a dichotomy here. There's got to be a negative. There's got to be a positive. What are the trade-offs and the downside to using the Lean Startup approach? So what we love about the Lean Startup approach is, first of all, it's really exciting to think, I don't have to have everything nailed down. I have to have a place to start. And if you wait, I mean, I've worked in an organization that went through analysis paralysis. It took so long to get anything done that, you know, you were like, I forgot what we were doing even. Mm -hmm. So I love the fact that it's like galvanizes you to action. But what people forget about the Lean Startup is that you really need to have a scientific process. Like where you start is your hypothesis. You know, mm -hmm. this isn't where it's going to end. But what happens is people get started and they do the minimally viable thing. And the minimally viable thing is never enough. And then they don't, they either don't change or they go out and they get some information and they change too rapidly and too frequently. So yes, Lean Startup is great. Have a hypothesis, take a step forward, actually look at the experiment, take your next step forward. I mean, one of the things we talk about is pivoting you know, a pivot means you keep one foot in place and you move the other foot, only move one thing at a time. We often see what we call pinball entrepreneurs. Hmm. Every two, every two customers they speak to suggest something different. So they pinball over there and then they pinball over there and then they pinball and they don't, they're not pivoting. They've picked both feet up and moved until they have no idea where they are. Or what they care about anymore, right? If you're one of those uh, designers who's leaving the, the big firm to start your own gig because you want more time with family. You want to be more selective in the clients that you work with and and get value and meaning out of that. And then six months later, you're working 14, 16 hours a day and you're taking any project that comes your way because it's a check, right? Like you've, you've lost your way. So uh, part of the challenge of, and, and I think it's important to contrast like what was before the lean startup uh, we're we're old enough and around business long enough plans. to remember the days of the business plan, right? Where you mm -hmm. talk to students to page spend oh, 20 <laughs> or 50 or, or more and you spend, you know, two or three years like locked in your dorm room, right? Like connecting all the dots and making sure the Excel file um, matches the, you know, the chapter in, in the plan about your, your financial uh, financials and funding strategy. Uh, and then you go to market and find out that nobody cares what yeah. it is you're offering. So that was the old model, um, was a very kind of inside out, we're going to work through all the details and have this huge document and connect all our 
uh, all the dots, cross all the T's, dot all the I's before we go to market. And that is, is bound to fail. But going to the other end of the continuum, as Kim was suggesting, where you're like, I don't know, let's just try something and we'll probably fail, but we'll bounce in a new direction. That That is equally flawed. There are trade-offs to both of those coming back to your uh, original use of the term and, and question. Um, so you you need to be somewhere in the middle. You need yes. to be fully and intentionally experimenting, but also don't make assumptions about the market. Don't raise too much money. Don't invest too much in a direction until you've actually done the work of going out, talking to customers, discovering what problem you're solving for them, uh, and then building around that. I think, yeah, I really, one thing that, I, there's a lot of uh, folks that I went to college with that are now, I'm 40, but Alex and I started when we were 25 and 27, which is for an architect's age, like to start that early is is not normal. Usually people wait until they're about 40 where right. they're at. And, and it could be like a, like you said, maybe they're just tired of uh, being treated like crap at the firm or something like that. For us, we were just laid off. But what I notice when I get a lot of folks that are now, again, about 40 middle age and they're called former colleagues at the university is that they, they experience this paralysis analysis. It's just an awful thing. And I'm not sure how I do, like what kind of coaching methods do you guys have or just uh, advice do you have for people who are listening and, and they they maybe are finally willing to admit that they have analysis paralysis. Well, how can they get over that hump? How can they get over, get towards the middle? Cause I'm with you. It's gotta be in the middle. You gotta, you can't, yes, yes, sir. And a certain amount of analysis needs to happen, but also at the same time, you gotta just jump. You gotta just jump into the water. So the answer is a little painful. They need to go talk to customers. Nobody wants to go talk to customers. It feels so hard to talk to strangers. And one of the big things we do in our classes mm. is we help send our students out on consulting projects and I don't let them finish it until they've actually spoken to a human being that they don't know, yeah. <laughs> right? It's got to be a stranger. Um, and you just talk to them, find out, you know, what is it? What are their underlying needs? What jobs are they essentially hiring for? How, what are pain points? What are others doing? What do they need to be different? What's worth paying for? You know, you can't just ask those questions outright. There's a technique to asking those questions. But I mean, so many people try to sit in a room and make a plan without actually talking to the human being who is going to be their customer, who is a stranger, right? And so you got to get over that. And then once you do, you're going to have so many insights be like, oh my gosh, I think I need to do X Yeah. and have your starting place. Yeah. So Lance, we also have a theory which has not been proven with academic evidence. So I admit that up front. Okay. But being a planner, being someone who needs everything in place before you take action, isn't typically just about starting a company or business, right? It, it transcends different parts of your life. So we're big mountain bikers. We love going out and doing trail stuff. And sometimes I will push Kim to say, we're just going to go out and ride. We're not going to have the plan and the trail all mapped out in advance and to know exactly where we're going to stop. Because you just don't know when you're going to run across a down tree or a rattlesnake, uh, as we did a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Um, so, like, if you start experimenting in small ways in other parts of your life, like, don't plan out every meal for the whole week. Like, leave a night free and say, I don't know, we're going to figure it out when we get there. And and that is a pattern that I think that we think kind of can can start to spill over where you become more 
comfortable with making decisions under uncertainty. And, and that's the whole theme of the, the book, The Titanic Effect, and a lot of what we talk with entrepreneurs about is that you can never be certain about the decisions you're making. There will always be trade-offs, but you have to be comfortable taking action under uncertainty and have a game plan for what happens when it doesn't work. And, and that, I think, is the step that might help your listeners is, okay, so you're going to try it. And what is plan B? If it doesn't work, if, if you were wrong, that's okay. What are you going to do next? Beautiful. That was fantastic. I really appreciate that kind of like, I think that's a perfect way for them. As somebody who's tepid, they're just dipping their toes in the water and they're starting to maybe do some personal stuff in that kind of way where it's a, and then maybe they just, they're opening the door, you know, and it eventually translates over professionally. Kim, Kim, you were going to say something, sorry. Say it, this is going to sound very academic, but when you think about the lean startup, it's a hypothesis. A hypothesis needs to be assessed. Yeah. Right. What I see a lot of times people don't write their hypothesis down. This is what I spend a lot of time with my students. Mm. Like, what did you think was going to happen? All right. So if this happens, what would you do? Like, how would you know if you were right? Like, what are the metric signs? Okay. So write the hypothesis down, step back and look at the hypothesis and see what you learned now. Okay. As Todd said, maybe have a plan B. Well, if this happens, we do that. If this other thing happens, we do C, you know, and then each one, you keep rephrasing your hypothesis to see where you are. So on that note of writing something down, uh, I'm curious, how does, when, when you talk about pivoting, I really like that metaphor and that analogy that you made, the analogy, I would say, is, is like, how does a positioning statement, how does like a startup writing a positioning statement relate to the pivot? Is that what sets their foot in, in there and they can just, they're pivoting versus pinball? So we think of pivoting in several directions. So you could pivot your product or service. So you could change that. You could pivot your target customer. You could pivot your business model. You could pivot having strategic partnerships. So there's like four. And those are all pieces that should be in a good position statement, right? Right. right. What are we doing for whom, how, and how are we charging for it? And mm -hmm. so a lot of times what I say to people is like email is a great way to test a pivot. So I'm I'm doing this now. What if I were to email everybody and I say, I'm doing this other product? What's the response I see? Or what if I only email to this part of my list that would let me test my customer? Yeah. Helps. No, no, it totally helps. Exactly. I just really like this re-emphasis you guys are putting on. The term is called moonlighting. Just so, just so you guys know of like, if you're an architecture firm, and, and you're allowed to moonlight. So let's say you, you just do the, your, the primary firm you're working for, you're an employee, does all medical, but and then they have like a potential client that comes in and says, hey, I a doctor. And he's like, I want to do a cabin up in the woods. Um, and they're like, well, we don't do that. And if the other firm allows you to moonlight, I just think it's a really great idea that you guys are bringing up. They're like, oh, that's your opportunity to go out there and meet with a potential client. And and try to understand, you know, where, where the market's at and then how you should position yourself for that. We're running up on the half hour here. You guys have been really great guests. I have two questions that I ask everybody as we as we end, end the episode. And that is the first one is if you guys could each answer this, that'd be great. Knowing what you know now, and if you could go back in time when you guys first started your consulting consulting work that you do, and then also the book, what is one piece of advice you give your former selves? Well, I just shared this last night in class. Okay. You know, selling a book, like anything, you're in digital marketing. And so you've got to do your homework um, to know, like, who are your competitors? What do they talk about? How are you different? I mean, we wrote a book and we left it for the publisher to do stuff. And then later on, we were like, 
wait a minute, we should mm. have a different name or, you know what I mean? Like you have to understand the marketplace in which your product is going to land. And we didn't do that enough of that. Todd, same. Uh, yeah. And, and I would say there are things that I would have done sooner, right? That, that mm. looking back, I, I waited until I felt more comfortable. Right. And, and so we all have that, even people yes. who are entrepreneurs and very quickly, I did want to point out, there's a big difference mentally between risk and uncertainty. And I think a lot of your listeners might associate the two as being the same and also view that being an entrepreneur is risky and people who are embracing entrepreneurship are risk takers. That is actually very far from the truth. Scientifically, there's been a lot of research mm. that successful entrepreneurs particularly are no more inclined to take risks than any of the rest of us, but they do get comfortable dealing with uncertainty. And it's a different part of your brain that works when you're confronting risk versus uncertainty. And you can train your brain to be able to kind of avoid that fight or flight mentality and start to process uncertainty. Uh, and I, I think if I exposed myself to that uncertainty professionally a little earlier, uh, I might have made some different choices. But that said, I love our life. I love what we are able to do and, and work with people, talk with folks like yourself. Uh, so, you know, at a big picture standpoint, I wouldn't make any 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 differences. Yeah, I really I think you're the first person in maybe a couple hundred episodes that has answered it, that has ended the answer in that way. And I, I want to emphasize that to the listeners is like, when I ask this question to guests, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to help help them, the listeners, avoid the, uh, not a pitfall, but just recognize that, look how many times other entrepreneurs have said, I wish I would have started, for example, started something sooner. A lot of real estate investors that I interview say that's exactly what they say. And it's for obvious reasons, because then the compounding interest would have started right. happening way earlier and stuff like that. So yeah, yeah, so it's not it's not trying to get my guests like Todd and Kim to uh, regret where they're at in life. It's just let's learn from others and as a collective here. So uh, you guys have been fantastic. If people want to get in touch with you guys, if they want to pick up the book, where can they find and follow you? Yeah, so we are professors at Indiana University Kelly School of Business. So you can reach us at our names, essentially, mksaxton at iu.edu and tsaxton at iu.edu. But the book has a website, thetitanicaffect.com. We're on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles. I mean, all the big bookshops. So, you know, grab a copy, enjoy the read. And please feel free to reach out. We'd love to have follow-up conversations and appreciate what you're doing and, and your clients as well. Awesome. Thanks so much, guys. Really appreciate your time. Uh, keep in touch and uh, we wish you nothing but success with that book. Thank you. Thanks.